Yeah. Now you can unmute yourself. Very good. Thank you. How are you, Ken? I have been well. Thank you. And you? Very good. Thank you for doing this. Let me just get everyone in. I'm just, they're waiting in the waiting room. I said, after you come in, this is going to be a different format. They should come in when you come in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. And but how have you been? Everything good? Uh, everything is excellent. A lot of work getting prepared for a training next week. Okay. So basically today, the whole idea was that I am not going to speak. It's it's you and everyone else. You're welcome to jump in whenever you want, Vikram. The whole, the whole idea is that all the thoughts which have over these episodes that we've reached this point, from here onwards, it is what you look at the future for mediation, the role of mediators, the essence of your journey of life. Today, it's all about that. Very nice. It sounds perfect. <laughs> So that now it's your show. If you want, I'll mute myself. I'm not there. <laughs> no, once again, you're welcome at any time. Um, and everyone else is welcome to jump in uh, as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I had an idea for what uh, might be a suitable beginning. Um, it's a wonderful quotation from Nikos Kazantzakis. Uh, Greek novelist. Um, he writes, uh, by believing passionately in something that does not exist, we create it. The non-existent is whatever we have not sufficiently desired. I like that. Um, because what it says is that um, uh, our passion for conflict resolution uh, is actually a force in helping to create it. Uh, and our ability to imagine ourselves into a world in which um, rather than being a kind of secondary thought about uh, perhaps when it's already too late, um, considering bringing in a mediator, uh, to instead approach uh, conflicts from the perspective of prevention uh, that would really be something. Um, and there's another uh, nice uh, little statement, uh, which is from the science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke, um, who says that the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And I think that's actually a wonderful description of what we do as mediators every day. Um, because by definition, everyone who comes to see us is totally and completely stuck and has no idea what to do. So um, what do we do? We venture a little past what is possible uh, into what is actually, um, uh, by their definition, impossible. So what is it about that that uh, brings conflicts um, into a realm in which they become malleable, um, uh, in which something can be done about them. And I think really there are kind of two things, and these are two pieces of what I think of myself as doing um, uh, and have been doing over the last several decades in conflict resolution. Um, the first of these is 
um, to enter the conflict and therefore allow it to enter me. Um, because some of the work of mediation takes place um, invisibly inside of us as we um, empathize with both people and the conflict on opposite sides of an abyss. And then somehow um, design and construct a bridge that connects them. And how exactly that happens uh, is a little mysterious to me still. Um, so the first part of this, I think, is um, finding the resolution inside of ourselves. But in order to do this, we first have to find the conflict inside of ourselves. And this means opening ourselves up and becoming vulnerable to something that could become painful. How exactly do we do that? Um, and I would say, um, haltingly, um, uh, blindly, um, without a full knowledge of what it is that we're doing, <clears throat> clumsily, um, and yet uh, by approximation, uh, we somehow end up being able to um, uh, find a path between two opposing sides of um, what is inside of us. Um, and once again, you know, really the question I think for all of us as conflict resolvers is uh, where exactly does that magical step take place? Uh, we know that it's an internal journey in part, but we also know that it has external features. Um, and so the second part of what we do uh, that makes a difference um, is the exact opposite of the first part. In the first part, we enter the conflict and allow it to enter us. But if that's all that we do, we get as stuck as they are. So the second thing that we do is we stand outside of it, look back at it. We gain perspective on it. So in a sense, the mediator is in two places at once. There was a wonderful um, uh, group during the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, I don't know if anyone has heard of them, called the Firesign Theater. And they put out a series of albums, uh, very bizarre stuff and really interesting radio theater. Uh, and the title of one of their albums was, How Can You Be in Two Places at Once When You're Not Anywhere at All? Um, and I think of this as the sort of spirituality, the Zen, if you will, of mediation. Um, but in reality, um, what we are, I think, um, doing is um, standing with people and simultaneously helping them figure out how to stand outside themselves, become conscious of themselves, um, see themselves as though from the outside and the problems that they are experiencing as though from the outside. And this is really one of the elements, I think, of awareness, mindfulness, um, uh, is that sense of perspective that we gain um, from being able to look at something um, while not 
um, obviously uh, being able to see um, uh, that clearly when we're inside of it. Uh, we all know this because we've all been in conflicts and we have lost perspective. We've lost our way. Uh, we have lost who we are. Um, and um, somehow, um, by counting to 10, by going into our room and slamming the door, um, by doing something, we manage somehow uh, at some point to be able to return to ourselves. Um, uh, but when we're in the grips of the conflict, this is very difficult for us. And so I think in a part, what we, in part, what we are doing as conflict resolvers um, is um, uh, uh, helping people um, uh, get a, um, uh, to gain insight. Um, and there is no real word for this, perspective is not exactly the right word for it, um, uh, but to understand what it is that's going on um, in a sense by recognizing that there are two things that are happening at once. Here's the easiest way of saying this. Um, when you are angry, are you aware of the fact that you are angry? And the answer is probably yes. And then the second question is, um, is the one who is aware of the fact that you are angry also angry? And the chances are good that the answer is no. So who's that one? Who's the one that, who know, who, that knows that you are angry and isn't angry? That's the observer. And a part of what spiritual practices in all spiritual traditions consist of um, is being able to um, gain some increased awareness and sensitivity uh, to that one, um, because that one lie, uh, really um, uh, is the ground of who we are um, and who the other one is as well. Now, let me say it a little differently. And once again, let me just you know, sort of suggest that you interrupt me at any point in time. Uh, the, to the topic here is the journey of a mediator. Uh, so here's what I, my journey has been. Um, one piece of it has been um, the exploration of conflict inside myself. Um, uh, really digging deep into that experience, um, examining it piece by piece. And what will happen to everyone who tries to be a mediator is that you will encounter at least three things in the course of your experience. One, um, you will get triggered by something that somebody does. Something's going to have an impact on you. Um, it will touch you. Um, I went through a very difficult divorce. I do divorce mediations. Every one of them touches me in that place. Um, secondly, you will form judgments about other people. Well, this one is really being ridiculous. Um, uh, why is, uh, 
uh, he being so ungenerous or unkind? Um, why is she being so selfish? Whatever those experiences might happen to be. And then to notice that every single one of those um, is simply another version of the first one, which is a trigger. Um, some accept that instead of it being an experience, um, uh, it's a behavior. Um, so what are the behavioral triggers? Um, they are uh, essentially indicators of skills that we lack. Um, what makes it di someone difficult is, the f is that we lack the skill to be able to handle what they are doing. Um, uh, and instead have slipped into that state of being plugged in. Um, and the third thing that will happen, um, uh, I think happens to everyone in the course of this work, uh, is that you will come to a place where you give up, uh, where you just feel like there's nothing I can do. And then something will happen that will reveal to you that you gave up way, way too soon way too soon and that um, there were miles to go uh, at the point where you stopped. Um, you only discover that um, when you keep on going or they won't let you go. Um, and what you realize is that um, uh, the inner journey of the mediator is really uh, first, um, giving yourself permission to experience conflicts uh, at their at their depths, um, to, and that means working on ourselves, trying to go back into those experiences that we had, and try to figure out what we do with them. Uh, and there is a word for what we do with them, um, and the word is forgiveness. But that's, in a way, a confusing word. So we would have to identify what that really means, um, what that experience is actually like. Uh, but in order to be able to get there, we have to find, um, uh, be in touch with the parts of ourselves uh, that we are most defended against. Um, uh, we have to, um, secondly, open ourselves up um, to the experience of um, really, uh, um, how do I say this, uh, sort of like, I, I'll describe it as creating empathy, but creating is too soft a word um, because there's actual physical work that is involved uh, in the um, forging of empathy with someone you really, really do not like. What do you, how do you do that? Um, and once again, this is not an easy thing to do. And the third thing that you have to do is you have to figure out why, or why is it that you gave up um, on this conflict? Um, what was it that led you to believe that nothing any longer could be done. You became tired at a certain point. You just got exhausted. Well, that's okay. But now what we want to do is we want to go a little bit beyond that and understand um, that 
Um, this exhaustion that we have experienced, um, this uh, giving up on people, um, is also a kind of giving up on ourselves. Um, the two go together. Um, uh, there is um, a way in which um, people who have experienced conflict um, uh, uh, really uh, uh, can be seen to uh, fundamentally engage in two different forms of letting go. Um, the first form of letting go is letting go of all of your false expectations of who the other one is supposed to be, your expectations of how it's supposed to have happened, um, how they should have treated you. Um, but the other one um, is more complicated because what it actually requires you to do is to distinguish between a false expectation that doesn't really belong to you and a real expectation that does. And the real expectation that we can have of ourselves, um, not of others, um, because that's a boundary violation. Um, what we are drawn back into uh, is something that uh, probably uh, mo many of you have heard of Mary Parker Follett, who is one of the founders of this field. Um, uh, she wrote in the 1910s and 1920s. Um, and um, wrote really brilliantly about conflict resolution as well as about industrial democracy and a series of, uh, of different topics, the nature of the state. And she's a really brilliant woman. And um, she defined humility in a very interesting way. And I think humility is a big part of what is required in order to be um, uh, a really good mediator. But now we have to have a sense of what this humility means. And I'll give you two definitions. Here's Mary Parker Follett's. Um, what humility means is never claiming any more than what actually belongs to you. And that means um, that there are two ways of screwing up relationships. One is by claiming too much, something that belongs to another person and not to you. And the other is by not claiming enough. That is by not claiming what actually does belong to you. Now that's kind of interesting. And I think we often vacillate between these, those two things. Uh, here's a second definition of humility. Uh, and I think this from, was from G.K. Chesterton. Um, who said um, that humility um, doesn't mean, or maybe it's C.S. Lewis, I can't remember one or the other. Um, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. Now that's kind of nice. Um, so it's not about I'm a terrible person. That is a kind of actually uh, um, a kind of inverse arrogance. Um, which makes, uh, continues to make yourself the center uh, of everything. Um, but what it uh, loses in the process is um, the quality of being in relationship. So fundamentally, 
what mediation is, it's, it's about being in relationship. Now that's a kind of interesting idea about it. Um, um, it there are, um, uh, once again, uh, possibilities of losing oneself in the relationship. And I'm reading a really interesting novel right now by Elena Ferranti, who wrote the Neapolitan Quartet, my brilliant friend and a series of others. Um, and this one is called Days of Abandonment. And it's about a woman whose husband leaves her um, and she's just completely devastated um, by this loss. Um, and um, wants him desperately, but as soon as he comes over, attacks him mercilessly. Um, and then just begins to lose completely all sense of herself, all sense of time, all sense of, you know, just sort of being able to um, act in the world. Um, and it's a nice study of what happens to someone who is experiencing conflict at one level, which is, you know, the level at which it is possible for us to lose a sense of self. But what relationship requires uh, is actually a very strong and powerful sense of self. Um, and the other way of doing it is to have that sense of self be so strong uh, that it ceases being interested in the other person. And therefore the opportunities for mutual growth, um, uh, mutual affection, uh, mutuality in general just kind of dissipate. So what mediation I think leads us to is what would be called in classical Buddhism, uh, the middle way. Um, and of course, this is what media, the, the medi part in mediation means, it means middle. Um, but here's where we lose sight of something important. A simple middle is compromise, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about something different. We are talking about relationship as a process, uh, as an iterative set of exchanges. Um, in other words, um, here are two different ways of combining things. One, you can take hot water and cold water and mix them together and get lukewarm water. Um, that's compromise. Two, you can take water and add flour and yeast and heat and make bread. And that is what mediation I think is. That's what relationship building is. This is the transformational quality that we are talking about when we describe mediation as a transformative or transformational experience. It is a change in the form of the substance itself as a result of the ways in which it is combined with something completely different, meaning um, who I am and who you are. And when we combine those, um, uh, we get something new we get us, uh, we get a we. And what that we represents, what that us represents um, is a much more powerful problem solving mechanism than any of us would be capable of creating on our own. So relationships on the one hand, we can think of as problem solving mechanisms. Um, that is, uh, we become stronger um, when we're with someone who has strengths where we have weaknesses, 
and weaknesses where we have strengths, who looks at the world a little differently, sees things through a different set of eyes. Very nice. And there's a second part of it. Uh, and this is the part that I think we oftentimes lose sight of. But I can tell you that uh, trying to figure this out uh, is an important part of at least one piece of my practice, which is marital mediation or relational mediation. Uh, and that is, um, when we are mediating, we're incredibly serious about what we are doing. Um, so what happens to play? What happens to fun? And yet we know that play and fun are really um, essential elements um, in what makes life enjoyable. And whenever there are two people together who are sharing at some kind of deep level, there is an element of play and an element of fun. Uh, we're just, why? Because we're discovering And this is one of the reasons why we enjoy talking to one another, why we enjoy being together, uh, why intimate connections are so powerful. Um, Norman Mailer has an interesting comment. Uh, he says, um, uh, there is no such thing as safe sex. There never was and there never will be. And what he meant, I think, by that is any intimate encounter between two people is risky because each one is now kind of um, um, allowing themselves to be transformed by the other. And I think that's essentially what deep intimate relationships are. They are a level of permission to the other person to say, I am willing to be changed through this interaction with you. I'm willing to become different. Uh, and without that, I don't think that we open up quite so much. But when we do do that, uh, the results are very powerful. But how on earth is it possible for us to even begin thinking about doing that? I mean, that is such a gigantic leap of faith, such an enormous, um, kind of uh, level of trust, uh, we have no idea where this is going to lead. Not one little bit, and yet we do it. And it turns out there's a neurophysiology of it that allows us to do this. There's a little place in our brains um, that when we fall in love, shuts down um, critical judgment um, and distrust of the other. Um, but I think um, the, the reason I'm saying these things is because what I'm really trying to say is something uh, a little bit deeper about what it is that the, you know, kind of the life of the mediator is the journey of the mediator. Um, and so I think what I've talked about is sort of the internal um, journey of trying to figure out how this impacts each of us. Um, uh, the journey of uh, sort of empathy and humility uh, in order to be able to create that empathy. Um, the journey that's a part of kind of not giving up. Um, but there's another part still, which is about 
Um, uh, let's see, how do I say this? This is difficult work. And yet I can tell you that I have, um, all, well, I have given huge amounts of energy and attention to other people over the last 41 years. Uh, I have gained more than I have given. Um, way, given, gained in ways that I could never have gained in any other way. Um, the, uh, uh, and uh, one element in this is simply um, being open to um, some kind of intimate contact with others that can transform me um, through the intimacy of conflict, uh, which is after all a very, very intimate experience, not exactly like the way Norman Mailer describes it, um, but it is an intimate experience, negatively intimate, um, especially. So, um, I think there needs to be a little warning sign on, uh, that's on every mediation training manual uh, that says, uh, look out, this could change your life. Um, and I think it does. I think it really does change our lives. Um, sort of like the warning on a cigarette package or something like that. Um, the fact that it changes it for the better uh, is really important. Um, but in the process, what we don't really see is that um, it's exactly the difficulty of it that changes it for the better. It's exactly the place where you give up, exactly the place where you have judgments of other people, exactly the place where you get, you know, sort of um, uh, upset by something that happens in the mediation. Those are the magical opportunities um, that when they happen, we are then able to say, um, thank you. Just thank you for the opportunity to be able to now look at myself in this way, uh, to see something uh, that is a place where things get stuck inside of me. And now I have an opportunity to take that thing apart so that I no longer get stuck in that place. Um, that's the work that I think all of us on some level are doing. Um, and what a gift to be able to do this kind of work and um, sort of uh, over a period of time begin to become a better human being as a result of the work that we're doing. Not bad, not a bad profession. Um, a last little piece about this, and then I want to kind of open it up um, for uh, commentary or questions or whatever you'd like to say. Um, uh, we can ask the question this way. Why now? Uh, why is it that so many people now across the planet are becoming interested in conflict resolution? And I think that there are several answers to this. Um, uh, one of them is that we are now facing problems on a global scale that can no longer be solved using traditional conflict resolution mechanisms like the military or the courts. 
So if we look at this in terms of power, rights, and interests, and we think of the military as an, an answer to um, conflict, uh, as is taking place right now uh, in Israel, um, then uh, what we will see ultimately is that um, uh, all that this is going to produce is lots of misery and death uh, and suffering. Uh, and that uh, nobody's life is made better as a result of this. Um, and we cannot claim um, that we are innocent uh, of involvement any longer because on a global scale, we are deeply involved uh, even though we don't necessarily know it. Um, James Baldwin said, um, uh, how can you let people go based on a claim of innocence? It is innocence itself that is the crime. Meaning um, our pulling back from the conflicts in the world and not trying to help in the ways that we know as a result of our experiences might be successful uh, in helping people lead a better life. Uh, let me say it a little differently. Um, in the United States and in various other countries around the world, um, there have been a number of um, political conflicts over the years. Um, and many of these are resolved through military force, um, suppression of voting. Um, uh, sometimes they're resolved through the courts. Uh, but what happens um, uh, from, uh, uh, I think when you th begin to think about this a little bit, is that you can see that as mediators, we have really had almost nothing to say about these conflicts. And yet our field is conflict resolution. So why not? Um, what is it that stops us? And I think there are a series of things actually that stop us. And I wrote a book recently about this um, called Politics, Dialogue and the Evolution of Democracy. Uh, one is the absence of a clearly defined path for mediators to take. And if we don't have a clearly defined path, we will end up on someone else's. And that other path that we end up on is going to be the path of um, uh, polarization. Uh, we will lose our capacity to um, have anything to say about a political conflict because we will join it. Um, and here the difficulty is every one of us has things that we care about. Um, and now the question is, um, how does that caring get expressed? And the difficulty is that we have inherited a culture of politics, a language of politics, and that language is exclusively polarized, uh, exclusively adversarial and competitive. So here is a definition, a three-part definition of political conflict. Um, what are the components that make up any political conflict? And I think there are three. One, 
In order for there to be a political conflict, there has to be a diversity of perspectives about how to solve a problem. No diversity, no conflict. Number two, there has to be an inequality in whose ideas about how to solve a problem are accepted and whose are not. No inequality, no conflict, or rather no political conflict, surely. Um, and number three, and this is the one that I think we have missed, is that there has to be an adversarial win-lose process for deciding whose ideas about how to solve problems get accepted and whose do not. Whose are affirmed, whose become policy, the policy of the state as a whole. Um, and now what we are confronting is a fundamental redefinition of the nature of government. That's pretty massive. Um, and I don't know that we have thought it through at a deep enough level or that we have prepared ourselves adequately to be able to enter into those conflicts. Um, and yet those skills are right there. Um, and those of us who work in the field of what is called public policy mediation, where we, I don't know if any of you work in public policy mediations. Uh, yeah, Louis. Um, this is um, uh, uh, an area in which political considerations come right in there. Um, and what, what, what happens is that we discover that we, there are ways of uh, assisting people in making political decisions. Um, so the difficulty is, uh, how exactly do we do that? And there is a, I think, a fundamental idea that is helpful to us. Um, we can think of politics as a combination of two things. One, uh, social problem solving. Uh, and if we just think of politics as social problem solving, we can see that fundamentally this is what everyone is doing. And then the second is the combination of that with a, um, a zero sum outcome. That is in an election, you vote yes or no, this candidate or that candidate, this party or that party. And the only choices are digital, either or. And therefore the only conversation that takes place is an either or conversation mine or yours. And as long as we have adopted a zero-sum game approach to problem solving, the only question that uh, uh, we are essentially asked is, uh, what are we prepared to do in order to win? And here we come up with the second fundamental purpose of politics, which is domination, superiority, the pecking order. In status, in wealth, in power. Who's on top, who's on the bottom? Who gets more, who gets less? Who eats first at the dinner table? And throughout the natural world, the what we call the animal kingdom, uh, this is the fundamental way that evolution has created for um, species to survive. 
scarce resources, there's going to be competition. There is an ecology um, of a relationship between food supplies, um, uh, predators, and prey. So there is grass uh, that the elk eats, uh, and then there are wolves who eat the elk. And if you disrupt any of that, um, you're going to get um, a, a different outcome in terms of, uh, you know, kind of uh, um, how many uh, of each group is going to survive. But what you discover over a period of time is um, if there are too many elk, the grass disappears and there aren't as many elk anymore. And if there aren't enough elk, the deer, the deer disappear. I, I'm sorry, the, the wolves disappear. Um, and so they did an experiment in um, uh, the, uh, uh, an area near Yellowstone National Park where they reintroduced wolves into an environment where they hadn't existed before. And here's what happened. Um, before the wolves came in, the elk would go down to the river and they would eat all of the young shoots uh, of the trees that were trying to grow there. And so the trees had disappeared over a period of time. As soon as the wolves came back in, the elk no longer did that. And now trees grew. And because trees grew, beavers came and they dammed up the, uh, some of the creeks and then fish came back. And because there were trees and fish and flowers and plants and birds came, uh, migratory birds and other kinds of birds. And because of them, insects came and the birds ate the insects and a huge uh, kind of explosion, ecological explosion took place um, because of the introduction of this one species. So the point of this isn't really about that. The point is about uh, the value of complexity in um, creating an ecology of balance that works over a period of time so that we see ourselves in relationship to one another um, as gaining and losing together. And once we have adopted that kind of an approach, then the idea of the zero sum game becomes completely counterproductive. Um, what instead we want to do is to figure out how we actually collaborate with one another better. And this, of course, I think uh, various uh, academics have looked at this and have said essentially one of the, you know, central reasons for the success of um, the human species uh, is the ability to collaborate, uh, the ability to work together across our differences. And this is what conflict resolution represents. So once again, why now? I think the reason why now is because the skills that we have developed up until now are leading us to a place where it actually will become possible um, to shift the way in which we disagree with one another uh, in the course of social problem solving so that we no longer require domination and superiority of one over the other because we shift from a zero-sum game into a non-zero-sum, non-competitive game uh, in which it is possible for both sides to win. 
Um, and saying that doesn't make it easy at all. Um, it's a difficult thing to do, uh, to make this actually happen. But this is the work that we are doing. It is that difficult work. And out of it um, comes um, uh, a recognition, really nicely stated uh, by um, Isaiah Berlin, who's a professor at Oxford, um, wrote really brilliant stuff, especially in literary criticism and philosophy. Um, what Isaiah Berlin said is that political issues are um, uh, in, princ in principle unscientific. And what he meant by that is they don't, uh, in principle, lead to a single correct answer. For every social problem, there are multiple correct answers. And once we have taken that complex, difficult social problem and reduced it to A versus B, we have lost all the complexity, all of the richness of the problem, and we have overly simplified the solution. And Einstein said, um, make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. And this is making things too simple. We have gun control issues in the United States. And now we've got two groups of people, one of whom are in favor of a, a ban on guns and the other are in favor of uh, complete freedom to um, purchase weapons. Um, there was a video that was uh, released recently that was on the web that shows a 13-year-old uh, kid uh, taken by a group of people with his mother, uh, first of all, to buy liquor, they won't let him. To buy cigarettes, they won't let him. Um, to rent a, a porn video, they won't let him. Uh, to, do, to buy a lottery ticket, they won't let him. And then they take him to buy a gun. And of course they let him. So now the problem is, how do we deal with this? Well, instead of thinking of there being a single solution, what, either A or B, we have to look for uh, multiple complex solutions to a complex problem. But there is energy in that simplicity. Um, there is passion in it. Uh, and a part of the political uh, purpose of candidates is to capture that passion to unleash that energy, to turn it in one's own direction. Um, and that is simply the energy of believing that the other side are, is evil uh, and that you are the one who has the right answer to this. Even though as soon as we begin to look at with any degree of care at what the issues are, we discover that um, uh, any simplistic approach to this is not really going to ultimately solve the problem. This is the approach of dogmatism, of orthodoxy, um, political orthodoxy of various kinds. And this is not just limited to the extremes. There is a kind of orthodoxy of the middle, uh, I would say as well. But here, what do we have to do? We have to talk to each other. We have to figure out how to do that. We have to find the questions that allow us to have conversations that are useful. 
So I was invited um, last year, uh, actually, I guess it was uh, in 2019 into 2020, uh, to work with a national political organization in the United States uh, that was uh, trying to support a democratic candidate for president of the United States. And they had 6,000 chapters across the United States and lots and lots of grassroots people. And inside the organization, there were people who were very much in favor of Bernie Sanders and others who were in favor of Joe Biden and others you know, who were uh, you know, pro Pete and pro Elizabeth and you know, all the various candidates. There were uh, people who were pro that person. And here's what happened. As soon as in any conversation you said the word Bernie or Elizabeth or Pete or Joe or Hillary or anything, all conversation stopped. Everybody knew exactly what everybody else thought. What was there to talk about? And then what happened is people just began yelling at one another. And the yelling was pointless. What's the purpose of that? Nobody's convinced by this. Um, so can we have a conversation instead? And then the question is, how do you want to create that conversation? How can we possibly create it? So I came up with a series of questions. Here are the first three as a group questions. Question one, without mentioning the name of the candidate that you support, what values do you believe your candidate stands for? And number two, how could we use those values in this conversation we are having right now in order to create a better outcome? Um, and question three, what do you think will happen if you um, continue to disagree with one another in ways that cause each other to feel um, undervalued disrespected. What do you think is likely to happen when it comes to election time? And these are just kind of obvious questions, but on the basis of those three questions, we began to create a willingness to have a, a real dialogue. And then come the other questions, the questions that you would invite people into um, that would go deeper into um, what it is that we really need to talk about here. And um, here's the fundamental idea, I think, that comes out of Isaiah Berlin. Every political tendency, every political group um, has some truth beneath it, behind it, within it. That is not necessarily the truth of what they are asserting because that can be completely false as for example, with um, uh, a scientific issue, where it's possible to have a completely false idea about um, you know, whether aliens are coming down or whether the earth is flat. Uh, these are things that can be proven scientifically. These are things that, that we don't really, they, they, take, they take a political form, but they aren't really political issues. Political issues are ones over which people have some deeper issue that they are concerned about um, that has become expressed in the form of 
some larger issue. So again, if we take gun control, uh, the issue here is people are concerned because people are being killed. So what are we gonna do about that? And now there are two approaches. One, um, demonize the other side uh, and seek solutions that um, prevent them from uh, uh, sort of uh, advancing their underlying issues, leaving them frustrated and creating more polarization. Uh, what are the issues on the other side that they're concerned about? Freedom, um, excessive control. Well, um, so we've got freedom and life. Um, which one is wrong? Which one is the right one? And the, making the other one wrong? And the answer is, well, there's something right about both of them. Um, there are people, um, uh, and I know some of these people, who actually live um, part of the year from hunting. Um, that's where their food comes from. And that's a very different approach, uh, but nobody who's interested in trying to save the lives of school children is really interested in trying to prevent somebody else from eating. That's a false equation. And so now the question becomes, okay, that part is pretty easy. What about the more difficult stuff, uh, the harder to handle stuff? Well, um, we have one answer to this. Uh, and the one answer that we have is dialogue real, honest, open dialogue. So many years ago, I ran a series of trainings for uh, uh, mediators in Greece um, to learn how to conduct dialogues between immigrants and Greek citizens. And we conducted those dialogues. So at the end of every training, we had a dialogue between actual immigrants and actual Greek citizens who hated them. And the focus was on empathy building and problem solving, joint problem solving. And every one of them came up with um, a kind of unity at the end between these two groups of people that were opposed to one another that you could not have imagined at the beginning. And this is, I would say, for those of us who do regular mediations, uh, haven't you had an experience of being in a conflict where you just could not have imagined where you ended up at the end of this with people hugging and, and kissing one another and, you know, sort of uh, crying, sobbing, standing there sobbing in each other's arms? How did that happen? Um, and it happens through relationship, through uh, communication, through dialogue, through the asking of questions that drop people down to a level of discourse that is fundamentally uh, more powerful, deeper, stronger, um, uh, more complex, and more interesting than the conversation they were having up until now. And the real serious problem with politics globally is that it's way too simple. Um, what is the simplest approach to conflict? Uh, the simplest approach, I think, is there is none. We deny that there is a conflict. The second easy, simplest approach is it's their fault. And that's the one that's our default setting in virtually every case. It's always their fault. 
no matter who they are. In fact, every one of us is one of the they whose fault it is. Everyone on this call has been blamed for some conflict of some sort or other, accused, um, painted as the bad one. Um, and who are all these bad people? They're just us, seen through somebody else's eyes who can't move past the simple bifurcation, the binary division, the uh, digital approach of the zero-sum game. Um, if I um, don't get what I want, um, I will lose status, wealth, power, position, opportunity, whatever it may happen to be. But truthfully, that is the place where that we've made that false assumption. So what is mediation really about? It is about shifting our fundamental focus as a species in the direction of collaborative problem solving, in the direction of consensus building, team building globally, as well as locally. Where does it start? In every single mediation that we do. But the real question is, where does it end? And I think that where it ends, we can now begin to imagine some pieces of, we don't know the full picture. We can't possibly. What we do know is what the very next step is, which is we, each of us, has to step out into the world and take some responsibility as a citizen for the conflicts that are taking place around us. We may do this simply as mediators, um, but we may also do it in a larger format by connecting with people, um, by assisting one another, um, and by designing the uh, conversations that can conceivably produce these kinds of outcomes. And I say this having now mediated or designed dialogues and conducted them between Israelis and Palestinians. I've done those dialogues um, between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, between Georgians and Russians, between Sandinistas and Contras. Um, these are all dialogues that I have facilitated. And out of every single one of those, including Catholics and Protestants and a whole bunch of others, out of every single one of those has emerged some deeper understanding of um, uh, kind of what the issues are uh, relatively simply, more importantly and deeper, who the other side is. Uh, and here's the fundamental outcome of every dialogue that you could imagine. Um, in the conflict between us and them, there is no them. There's just us, that's all. And as soon as we think of it that way, and as soon as we begin to act in that way, um, many things become possible that were not possible before. It changes everything. So, um, the journey of the mediator, I think, is now actually just beginning um, to take on a task that we hadn't really seen at the beginning. Um, in the very beginning, 
we saw ourselves as really in one of a couple of places. One was uh, stopping community violence. Um, this was in the late 1970s after the murder of Martin Luther King and um, Malcolm X and Bobby Kennedy and a whole series of other people in the United States. Um, second was clogged courts, litigation, a complete waste of time and energy and money when cases could be settled. And this is part of how I became a mediator in 1980. I was a judge. And as part of my task as a judge was to settle cases. And I just found that I really enjoyed it and that it was powerful and constructive and way better than being a judge. And um, left that and became a mediator instead. So now what? Um, uh, the, um, uh, what I think um, this piece that we are now able to see is, um, is uh, uh, I think of as a couple of things. One of them is conflict resolution systems design uh, and as an outcome, the possibility of prevention. Uh, and a second is the internal work of trying to dismantle um, and shift in the direction of awareness um, uh, and empathy, uh, the fight or flight responses that take place inside each of us when we confront some conflict. And the third, of course, um, is about building the um, relationships and the relational capacities um, inside organizations and institutions, inside families and couples, um, inside communities, um, uh, within cultures. And my label for all of this is uh, that we shift from conflict resolution to conflict revolution. And what a conflict revolution is, is a fundamental shift uh, in how we process conflict everywhere. That's what I think uh, the journey of the mediator leads us to. And Ken, what about the essence of that journey? Do you want to put it down into five points of the essence of your journey, the, the whole evolution that has taken place? Something on that? Yes. Um, uh, uh, let me, I, I think I can describe this chronologically a little bit. Um, as I indicated, I began as a judge uh, settling uh, cases that had been brought, bef uh, bef that is not as the, the judge in that particular case, but as a settlement judge. Uh, and then secondly, um, setting up a mediation practice and working with uh, whoever walked in the door. Uh, and in the beginning, there were very few mediators. I was one of like three or four in Los Angeles at that time. Uh, and now there are hundreds, maybe even thousands in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, I think the second part was building the skills, uh, figuring out what this actually was. 
And I've now written 15 books, each one of which is a real struggle for language to be able to try to describe what this actually is. Uh, writing case studies of, of mediations that I did that miraculously succeeded uh, and miraculously failed. Um, um, uh, I, I wrote a book called Mediating Dangerously uh, in which I describe what I call the frontiers of conflict resolution. Uh, that's the subtitle of the book. What's a frontier? Um, it's a place either where things come together in ways that you could not conceivably have imagined. And more immediately, it's a place where things fall apart, um, where everything that you knew no longer works. So I was drawn to those frontiers to explore them. And where are those frontiers? Um, they're internal and inside each of us, and they are external. Uh, and in the relationships and the systems that are outside of us. And so that exploration took a second piece of this. And then the third part was just saying, um, uh, it is necessary now to dig deep into this issue of political conflict. And so what I did was I went back and reread uh, Aristotle on politics. Um, and, um, of course, Socrates and Plato and Democritus and um, uh, also uh, I have read quite a bit in Greek um, uh, drama, uh, but then moving on into uh, other political theorists um, uh, over a long period of time throughout into the 20th century and trying to figure out how to make try to make sense of this um, and realizing that it was possible to find, um, to define what I call an interest-based approach to um, political decision-making, um, to political conflicts. And that means um, really taking seriously the possibility of um, building a collaborative consensus-based approach to decision-making. Voting uh, always requires you to vote yes or no. We don't have analog voting, although it's possible to create it. Uh, in some places where you have, uh, you have, there's a version of it where you can give one candidate anywhere between one and five points, for example, and another candidate, maybe let's say you have, you know, you give, uh, you have a total of 10 points that you can give and you can give all 10 to one or one to one and two to another and three to another, etc. cetera. Uh, there are those forms of voting. Those are still voting. And what I think we are now looking at um, is uh, the need for a much more um, comprehensive approach to the issues that we're facing. If we just look at global warming as an illustration, and here the big shift for me was actually going to Copenhagen uh, and bringing um, uh, about a hundred mediators to the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference many years ago, and then watching this process as it worked. And I'm now trying to encourage the people who are responsible for Glasgow to build into their process 
conflict resolution mechanisms that are really quite simple, but could make a dramatic shift in how people approach this problem. How do we solve global warming? We have to do it together. No country can do it alone. It's just not possible. So we have to figure out how to work across national lines. Are we doing that now? Well, on some levels, yes. And on other levels, we're moving in the opposite direction. There is the old way of doing things that is still here. Uh, the competitions, um, the hostilities, the kind of almost inbred hatreds of one another. And these are the things that we have to figure out how to take on and how to dismantle. Is this unbelievably audacious? Absolutely. What gives us the permission to do this? An equally unbelievable humility. It's the only way. We have to combine those two together. So, uh, Luis, I saw that your hand no, was up earlier. No, no, Luis will, Luis will come later. First I, first, I will go through some questions that I have. Oh, okay. No, Luis, this is my control. Who comes in is my control. Okay, sorry. No, no, sorry. Look, no, look, various countries, private mediation is just about at the nascent stage. Now, with your 40 years of experience of development of my private mediation, we'll come to the court part later. So those 40 years of your experience of developing private mediation in India, you've seen it happening in front of you. What would what are the lessons you would give to other places, other countries, or mediators in other countries, or maybe policymakers or whatever, how that has to develop in those countries? And So part of my experience also that I didn't really describe very extensively was uh, coming up with the idea and being the first president and founder of Mediators Beyond Borders, uh, which I did many, many years ago. Uh, and then I uh, working in over 25 countries around the world, doing different kinds of conflict resolution work. And there are a couple of lessons that come out of this. Um, the first uh, is uh, the uh, idea um, that the nation state represents on the one hand, um, the most successful problem solving mechanism ever created in the history of the human race. And on the other hand, um, it's now blocked. How do you stop Ebola in one country? How do you stop the coronavirus in one country? You can't do it. How do you stop species extinctions? Um, nothing except for human beings respects that kind of you know, sort of line in the sand boundary um, that divides uh, a place into two countries where there's nothing there that otherwise would divide it. So the first is to recognize that all of this effort to create sovereignty and to strengthen sovereign rights um, is grounded in colonialism. Um, and was an important counter to the colonial idea. That is, how do you get out of colonialism? Um, you recognize the sovereignty of nationality. Um, there are national liberation struggles that take place within various countries around the world. And there is one that is taking place right now, which is not very well remarked uh, in Morocco, uh, in the um, uh, in various other places around the world where um, we have cultures that were combined together 
primarily by European powers uh, in order to be able to administer uh, and you know, sort of uh, uh, turn those into a kind of um, economic resource uh, for the colonial power. We've now, now moved beyond that idea for the most part in the world. Um, but here we come up with a second. Uh, as long as we are um, operating on the basis of power, um, the, uh, what is required is to develop a very strong military, uh, to arm it to the teeth, um, to control dissent inside of your country. Uh, and of course, you're required then to tax people to the limit in order to be able to afford that kind of military expenditure that is never ending. Um, and that is never ever going to resolve the issue of security or well-being um, uh, in any kind of constructive way. Um, we're now facing nuclear proliferation, which is massive. So there has to be a different approach. That's the first idea. The second is um, to adopt an approach to working with people from different cultures that is inherently respectful uh, and takes advantage of what those cultures already know about how to deal with conflicts. Um, and there was a wonderful article by John Paul Lederach, who was with the Mennonite Conciliation Service, written many years ago, called The Cultural Assumptions of North American Mediation. And here what, we, what he came up with was an idea which is called an elicitive approach, which is to try to find out um, within a given culture, how are conflicts handled? Um, where are the places where it works and you want to continue doing that? Where are the places where it falls apart and you'd like to look at what other people do? Um, and uh, here's an example. Um, I did work several years ago in Nicaragua. I mentioned about me mediating between uh, Sandinistas and Contras. Uh, and we started this program uh, and the American group that came down to work with both sides uh, we're using the Spanish word conflictos. And people were confused about what we were talking about. And then all of a sudden, one of the participants said, oh, you mean desacuerdos, disagreements. Oh, now we understand what you're talking about because conflictos is different from desacuerdos. So um, what this led to was a question, which is, well, what are all the words that you use to describe conflicts uh, in Nicaragua. And what do you do when each of those words happens? Who do you go to? Uh, how does the process work for each one? And um, what are some words that we could use that could define a different approach? Uh, and then once again, uh, to strengthen existing procedures and look for ways of working across lines uh, bringing together people who don't belong in the same conversation. Yeah. But, yeah. This, but this is what, in terms of role of mediators, when you talk about the role of mediators, this is one thing that did come up, that who are the parties who are going to be on the table and who is going to appoint the mediators when you have social problem solving and global problem solving in these cases, which was something which was quite a debate on that, but nothing really concrete could come up in our discussion. 
there is, uh, I've actually, I'm doing a training on this next week. Um, uh, I call it uh, large group, multi-stakeholder multi consensus building processes. And the first stage in doing a process like this is what is the stage of what's called convening. And in the convening stage, that's exactly the issue you take on. And you began by interviewing key people and then identifying who else needs to be spoken to. And there are two groups that you need to speak to. One are the people who can actually make it happen. And two are the people who can prevent it from happening. And then we have to figure out how do we draw those two groups of people together. And then we're looking at creating ground rules for how we're gonna operate with one another and going back and forth and back and forth um, and uh, developing those either core principles or ground rules, however we define them, uh, and a sense of what the process is, making sure that the team of mediators or conflict resolvers reflects the group that you're gonna be working with so if I'm working, for example, with a mixed group of African-American, Latino, uh, Asian, Caucasian people, I will make sure that the mediators who I'm working with, who constitute the team, reflect those different communities so everybody can see that um, their kind of, um, uh, you know, their experience, their reality, their culture, their language is going to be a part of what happens at all levels throughout the conversation. Um, so that's just the first piece of it. Um, and depending on how you do it, you can boil it down to eight pieces or 10 or 16 or um, however many you would like. Uh, there's a fair amount that has been written about this by the Consensus Building Institute in uh, Cambridge that's at MIT, uh, by Peter Adler in Hawaii, um, uh, by the Harvard Program on Negotiation, some people who are there, by CDR Associates in Boulder, Colorado. All of these groups do this type of work routinely. Um, and it's very powerful and exciting work. Um, and one part of this is, um, figuring out how you overcome that initial distrust that I think is a part of the reason why you're asking the question, Vikram, because people come to it with that kind of distrust. Uh, between uh, Indians and Pakistanis, um, Hindi and Muslim, um, uh, Jewish and Muslim, whatever it may happen to be, how do you start this conversation? Uh, well, here are the opening questions in the um, for the immigrants and Greek citizens. Two opening questions. One, um, have you personally, as to each person, have you personally in your life, in a family or a neighborhood or a school or a workplace, been the new one? And everybody else has been there for a while. What did that feel like? What happened? What stories do you want to tell about what took place then? Um, and have you ever in your life, in a family or neighborhood or school or workplace, been the one who has been there for a while and now new people are coming in and changing things? What does that feel like? 
How are you treated? Um, what are the stories you want to tell about what that experience was like for you? And here's another example uh, done by one of the members of our team, a real life physical example. Uh, he got into the room with all the Greek citizens and the, and the immigrants, and he took masking tape and made a um, square, large square in the center of the circle. Then he asked for two immigrants and two Greek citizens to come forward. They came forward. He said, okay, I just want you to walk around in this square. Don't pay any attention to each other. Just try and walk around, mind your own business. The square is quite large and just walk around. Don't interact at all. And they did this for a little while. And they said, okay, I want two more from each group and two more and two more until finally the place was crowded and you couldn't do it anymore. And then he just interviewed people and said, what did that feel like? And guess what? Everybody felt the same. Everybody's experiencing similar problems. Only instead of the Greek citizens saying, this is your fault and those immigrants saying, this is your fault. Now we can say, how do we jointly address our common problems? Because whatever is something that you're saying is my fault is a problem for both of us. And that's where it begins. I hope that helps answer your question. Yeah. But okay, this I will take up later. But basically, Mary, Mary wants to leave. I thought I thought she'd just say bye to you before leaving. And Louis, I'll just take you yes. after that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ken. It is so good to see you. You wrote this. You wrote the forward to the second edition of my book, "The Mind of a Peacemaker: The Psychology of Me Mediation." I am always so inspired by you. You've been most gracious, and I'm always humbled to get to hear you and, and be a part of this, this incredible process. I'm actually leaving to work with some friends in India on, on some more mediation projects. So I'm so sorry, I, my schedule is, I have to leave, but I will email you soon and, and thank you so much. And thank you Vikram for, for organizing this, thank you. And Mary, what you can do is you can wish him his birthday today. You can also do it on the 18th, but you can also wish him here <laughs> in advance. Uh, happy birthday. Thank you, Mary. And uh, uh, Mary's book is actually quite good. Uh, you might want to take a look at it. Maybe in the chat, we could, we, you could put your, um, the title so yeah. that people can, can find it. Thank you so much and happy birthday. My husband, Ken, his birthday was yeah. just a couple of days ago. So yeah, great. thank you so much and happy birthday. I will right. put it, I will send it to Vikram yeah. and he can post it in the chat. Okay. Thank, thank you for you coming. So yeah. Thank you for coming in, Mary and Ken, both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. Louis, I'm sorry for keeping you yeah, waiting. Thank you. No, no, thank you. Um, hi, Ken. Uh, happy birthday. Now, quick question. Uh, maybe. I'm, since January, I'm serving as a an, um, deputy of conflict management for the prime minister office in Peru. So Beautiful. maybe two months ago, yeah, it's an amazing challenge because I'm, I'm overseeing the facilitation of over 70 dialogue tables in the whole country, social conflicts mainly extractive industry and local communities. So I did a presentation once to the president and he gave us a task to our office which said, we need to reset our relationships, the economical and social relationships. So 
I didn't have this agenda in my mind when we had this meeting today, but you made me think that, well, uh, this is my question. So how, how do we reset relationships? How do we shift from transactional relationships? Here's your little um, health center or your little school. So you embrace my foreign investment. So how we change this transactional relationship to a more trusting collaborative relationship and, and that's it. I mean, how do we trigger or activate empathy on others? How we do this empathy building that you mentioned, how we help people to connect and to shift that mindset to, to have a society mutual gain mindset kind of thing. So it's, a, it's for the almost the whole country. So we need to start having a conversation and, and they gave us the task of, okay, in January, you need to set up some sort of event to start the, roll, uh, the ball rolling, to start this transformation or revolution, as you mentioned. There you go. What kind of questions can, I, can we put on the table to trigger this revolution? Wow. Amazing. Amazing, Luis. First of all, congratulations for having gotten this piece of work. This is really incredible. Um, and you now have an opportunity to do something really amazing. I'm, I just, I, I bow to you. Um, I wish you great success in what you're doing. Um, I would say that what, uh, what the, the, for me, the, the opening part of the design process is to find a question um, that helps people uh, not uh, sort of directly address the problem, but instead to talk about, uh, for example, the kind of relationship they would like to have with one another. So my intuitive response without meeting anybody or talking to anybody would be to ask the question, what words would you use to describe the kind of relationship you most want to have with one another? representatives of all the various groups. And I did this in one uh, uh, country uh, um, uh, in the South that I won't be named right now, uh, mm -hmm. but I did this in one country and it was about how do we change our relationships here? And the, oh, the question was uh, all the words for change. Immediately, what are the words? These were all in Spanish, cambio. Uh, and then what happened is we wrote them all down and we reached consensus on all the words. And then what we did was we put out, we created t-shirts using the, uh, one of the t-shirt factories in the country. And on the front of the t-shirt was Cambio S. And on the back of the t-shirt was all the words. And we gave them out to everybody. Um, but if you had something like that, where it was relationships are, uh, or the kind of relationships that we want to have are, Here's my four step, uh, four questions that I use to get people to consensus on this. And this really comes out of family mediation, but I've used it in larger settings like I've described. What we're really trying to create is a, is a sense of shared values. Uh, so question one, what words would you use to describe the kind of relationship you most want to have or the kind of family you most want to have? And every one of those words is a word that comes from heart because you've asked most want to have. And so what they're coming from is a place of desire, of wanting. 
and therefore there will be heart in those words. Um, second question, does anybody here disagree with any of those words? And I have yet to find any disagreement, but if there is disagreement, then we either set that word aside or we, we work on it a little bit to see if we can fine tune the word to get it to be one where everybody agrees. But we reach consensus on a set of words. Uh, and then I usually will say, congratulations, you've reached consensus. These are the words now. Now, question three, here's where it becomes serious. Are each of you prepared right now in this conversation and the ones that will follow to begin living up to those words? Are you prepared right now to start living up to them, trying to live up to them? And they will all kind of gulp and they'll say yes. Question four, do any of us have permission to stop the conversation if we begin moving away from those words? And then everybody says yes. And now um, we can then begin to start. And here's where the empathy building comes in. Um, the first secret of all of these large group processes is to break down into small groups. So what I would ordinarily do is I'd break the, the large group down into small groups. And then I would say, um, in your small group, take one of those words and tell a story to everyone else in the group about what that word means to you, why that word is important to you. Tell a story about you, about your life that explains that. And now empathy is automatic with storytelling. And then you ask the question, what do each of those stories have in common? The ones you just told. And now let's present what they have in common to all the other small groups. And we'll see what they have in common in their stories. And now where do we go uh, after we have done this and we have seen what we have in common? Um, and I think the answer is you begin the process of process design by grounding it in a set of shared values in a set of outcomes that you want to achieve. There are people who define this as designing the future from the future, but we have the actual experience now of having that co successful conversation. And I will usually debrief and I will say, um, how was that conversation for you? Were you able to live up to those words? How are you able to do that now when you haven't been able to for the last 300 years? Mm -hmm. What was different, right? So the goal of this is to just kind of get people realizing that they don't have to do it this way. They can do it completely differently and they love being able to do that. And now what we can then do is to say, here's a kind of little secret to this. Let's say, what are the words for the relationship that you want to have? Number one, honesty. Guess what? that one feels lied to. Number two, respect. Guess what? That one feels disrespected. So now we can, and whatever the words might happen to be, communication, guess what? That one feels uncommunicated to, uh, unloved, whatever it may happen to be. Now, 
what, uh, if we recognize that every one of these words represents something that we are not doing well enough, that's what makes it a value, then what, do we, what is the problem that we have to solve here? And now we can use those words as a way of transitioning into problem solving, not by creating the problem as the context and then trying desperately to find a solution in the midst of all of the hatred and depression and sadness and you know, sort of surrender and everything else that's going on. But instead we start with the authentic experience of being able to feel those words in our lives. And then we surface the problem in the midst of that experience where it doesn't overwhelm the positive experience people have just had. If we just have the positive experience and we don't talk about the negative stuff, uh, it's nice, it's pretty, but it doesn't solve any problems. We have to do both, but it's important to do it in order so that we don't start with uh, how terrible everything is and then try to imagine how it might be different. Is that helpful? Thank you. Okay. Can it's now, okay. birthday, uh, you gave me an amazing gift. So yes. uh, that's yeah. amazing. Thank you very okay. much. Thank okay. You. Ken Reza is from Iran. He wants to ask you something. Yes. In connection with the oil and gas thing. Yes, Reza. Um, hello, Professor Clark. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to be here in this seminar. And I have a question. I'm a student of LLM Oil and Gas Law in University of Tehran. Uh, there are two main elements that, that influence the oil and gas contracts, in, in, whether it's in, this, in the part of award or after the award in the implementation, in the implementation of contract the maintenance of commercial relationship and the maintenance of political relationship. In, in unstable economies uh, that they face these uh, two elements and they need to maintain them to complete the contracts, how does a mediator uh, decide this strategy of mediation and, prior and the prior priority of principles to um, make more interesting for the uh, states to bring the conflict in mediation rather than courts? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, here, uh, the difficulty I think is that everything is connected to everything else. Um, I've forgotten who said this, somebody said, um, maybe it was, I, I can't remember who said it. Um, in order to make a cup of tea, you have to first invent the universe. Um, and it's a nice little statement because what you are talking about is um, commercial relations that are already interconnected in ways that, uh, and predetermined in a sense, um, by a set of assumptions uh, and differences in assumptions um, and by competition uh, and by a series of different elements like that, that make it difficult um, to resolve without resolving everything. So there are two approaches that we take to this. The first approach is a relatively simple one and it's probably the one that will be most successful for you. And that is to treat it as an isolated system and not bring in all of these other experiences. Uh, but within that isolated system to look for ways, for example, of 
um, balancing power, as we say in mediation, or um, uh, equalizing uh, responsibility for problems and for outcomes. Um, one of the things that comes out, the, this is going to sound a little strange, but one of the things that comes, lessons that comes out of divorce mediation for me uh, is the realization that every marriage is a system. And if, you're, if you have one person who's behaving badly, it is connected somehow to the other person. And so to treat it as the responsibility of just one person as the one person can do is, is the only one who's responsible for fixing it, um, isn't going to be as successful as treating it as a system where each one is responsible for fixing a piece of it. So um, even for example, in uh, let's take a, a workplace example, uh, a case where there is bullying, um, bullying can be seen either, either as an act or as a relationship. But if you see it as a relationship, it's a relationship between someone who feels very strongly about something and is willing to be aggressive in order to get it. And someone who feels intimidated when they are presented with aggression. Bullying is the relationship between um, somebody who's aggressive and somebody who feels intimidated, someone who yells and someone who doesn't like being yelled at. And therefore, each one of them can be uh, enlisted to do something about it. So the first part of the problem, I think, is to try to define the problem in ways that allow it to be looked at systemically, um, taking away responsibility for being the one who did it from anybody. Uh, and instead saying, we are all facing this problem together. How can we solve it together? That's the first piece of this. There's a second piece. And this is often lost sight of, in, particularly in commercial mediations. Um, oftentimes what mediators in commercial mediations will say, or what people will say in commercial mediations, lawyers especially, is it's just about the money. But if we ask, does money have a meaning? The answer will be yes. So the question is, what is the meaning of the money? Uh, why are we doing this? What are the ends that we are trying to achieve? What, uh, we can go back to this idea about what kind of relationships we want to have with one another. That's one approach. Um, but another piece of this is um, that it will be very difficult for you to do any more than just settle the dispute as long as you're treating it as a closed system. The open system would require you to then bring in maybe other parties who are impacted by the decision there. Uh, it may require you to um, uh, design, for example, commercial instruments that allow for mediation of disputes in the future. I don't know if this is really directly addressing what you're asking, Reza, or whether I'm missing, missing your point. I wasn't entirely sure that I understood the circumstances that you were describing. Uh, is, this, is this helpful to you or am I, 
am I missing the picture? Yes, this is, this is the right, but the, the basis that I asked the question is because that mediation is really new in Iran and we really don't have the centers. And I'm, I'm thinking about ways um, to bring trust into the state that you can use mediation instead of bringing all of the contracts into court or uh, bringing them to arbitration, oh. for example, the trust in exit. So how mediation can play a constructive role in these circumstances? Very good. So thank you very much for that uh, context. In Europe, um, the European Union did a number of studies several years ago, uh, trying, which are really systems design studies, looking at what the cost of the legal system is, uh, how many days it spends to resolve a dispute like this, uh, and what mediation could do instead. And what you see immediately and is, is just way too costly, way too time consuming. Uh, there are better expressions of our energy. There's another approach I would say in an Islamic country, which is to try to find support within Islam and within um, the Quran for this type of approach to problem solving. And there uh, are several people who have looked at um, Islam from this perspective and have written short little pieces about why mediation is consistent with Islam. Uh, and for a, um, uh, a government that has very strong religious roots, uh, arguments like this can sometimes be successful as well. Um, there is within conflict resolution systems design, there's another approach. Um, which is, uh, I call a conflict audit. And a conflict audit will look at, um, first of all, what the system is costing you just financially uh, in terms of, well, here's a simple question. Um, how much money are you spending right now on lawyers? How much time does the average manager within the oil industry spend on these kinds of conflicts at what uh, salary. And if you start to accumulate those figures, you will see that the costs are just enormous. And the idea that you could save even just a fraction of those costs by mediating disputes is oftentimes very successful there as well. Uh, what I found most successful in my approach at the very beginning was essentially to say this, um, instead of adopting this approach for the entire industry, just create a pilot project. And here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to send me um, two disputes a month. That's all. Uh, or three to five or five or whatever you would want to do. But just a small number of disputes. Uh, and let me just see what I can do with those. And we'll do this for three months. And then I'm going to report back to you on what the results are. And you'll be able to see, did this work or didn't it? And I have done that type of work for free, not even charging for it. Uh, but I would say within the oil industry, you should be able to charge for it. But Ken, never, never say you didn't charge for it. Never, ever say because everywhere the mediation and free is all linked together. We will never say it was free. We did not hear you. <laughs> and Andrea had something. Andrea is from Ireland. Andrea, 
Hi, Ken. How are you? Um, happy I'm birthday. Good, and how are you? good. And I've spent the last few years delving into so much of your work that I, you know, find oh. it astounding. Um, having listened to the last two speakers, mine probably seems like a very simple thing. It's not a question. It's more, I, I have this strong belief that, and, and it was from asking my 15-year-old daughter a question of how do I get, how do we get your generation to think about conflict differently? Because I think if we start there, we can move forward. It's much harder to change set mindsets than that age group. And her response actually astounded me because her response was, well, you, you, as in the adults, you're the ones that are teaching us, you know, so you have to change your way if you want our generation to change our way. And which I was going, I kind of went, my God, she's more insightful than I am. <laughs> but my, my thing is that in order to get to that generation, to teach them a better way of understanding conflict. I mean, you know, the obvious protocol is into our schools. But with that comes a need for unbiased education in our history books and everything else. So how do we start that process? I know that's a huge question. Um, and the other thing is that, is that the answer to mediation being an acceptable protocol to the legal system, that the mindset is, because so much of our, our, the way our mind works is based on memory, what's comfortable to our experience. So for us to actually change our systems as a, in a global way, our, I, I believe, and I could be wrong, that our protocol is to look after our younger generations, to teach them a better way, so that when it comes to their stage of being you know, the decision makers of the world, that collaboration, sitting at the table together, respecting values is second nature. And it's, it might seem a bit like I'm in marshmallow world that everything is perfect, <laughs> but I really do believe, uh, and it's that strong belief that drives me to kind of, you know, work with schools and try and help them see a better way. And, and not just in the realm of, peer mediation and restorative practice, but actually to understand values, to understand respect, to understand what it is to actually actively listen to somebody and to listen to understand them. So it's probably very basic stuff compared to what the last two speakers spoke to you about, but I would just like your opinion on it, if that's okay. Uh, uh, it, is, it is very basic and it's also very advanced. Uh, mm -hmm. And good for you that you're doing this work. Uh, it is absolutely critical. It's essential um, that we do this work. Uh, I'm working, I'm on the board, uh, advisory board for a group in Los Angeles called Kids. I, I, I know, know because that. I've been, Jason Harper has been very good. He gave me a video, uh, yes. call. He gave me a video call last week so we could have a discussion. So um, yeah, I've been, I mean, the, the amount of help out there, people really want to share their information. Yeah, which is really absolutely wonderful. There are a couple of things that you might not have thought about. So uh, media, peer mediation programs in schools, mm -hmm. that's I think quite obvious. Uh, restorative justice practices are really important. Creating uh, classes in conflict resolution where the kids you know, are you know, sort of regularly, every semester, every kid takes a class in this. What I found useful are two other things. 
One is, um, uh, I'll say three other things. Uh, one of them is um, finding ways for kids to express this culturally through drama, uh, through music, through art, through dance. Um, and we don't have nearly enough funding to promote this kind of thing, but uh, so that it isn't just one class, it's something that can be done artistically um, and expressed in a whole bunch of different forms. Um, a second uh, is um, organizing, there, there was one uh, school in Los Angeles that I uh, helped to design a class for, and the title of the class was Mysteries. And it's all about, mostly for junior high and high school students about the mystery of growing up. All the stuff that nobody talks about in school that everybody is really interested in. Um, how do you tell somebody that you're interested in them romantically? Um, wh what kind of language do you use to do that? What works, what doesn't work? Um, what is it like to grow up as a, as a young girl or as a young boy? What do you want the other gender to know about what it felt like to grow up in that way? What are some of the things that you never ever want to hear or experience again as a girl or as a boy growing up? And would you be willing to tell that to the other group? What are the questions you always wanted to ask the other group but were afraid to? Now's your time, ask away, right? So that kind of model of open conversation about issues that give rise to conflicts, I think is important. Um, there is, um, within the way that we have handled the COVID vaccine and the vaccinations, there are a number of lessons that we are teaching about conflict. Within uh, the realm of what we are doing in climate change, there are lessons about how we resolve conflicts, including very bad ones, um, like uh, who gets the vaccines and who doesn't, and who gets the support for shifting away from uh, fossil fuels and who doesn't, uh, those kinds of lessons, and how do we resolve our differences with one another. Um, there's a third thing, which is uh, something that I did a couple of years ago, and I haven't really had time to do much on it since then. Um, I developed a program on conflict resolution for um, an elementary school, which included kindergartners. And the program was for the kids, the parents, the teachers, and the administrators all together. So all the parents agreed to be a part of this program. And the program was to adopt exactly the same approach to conflict resolution that would be used in all areas by teachers with one another, teachers and administrators, administrators and parents, parents and kids. And what the program consisted of was about 12 questions. Uh, question one, what happened? Um, uh, two, uh, you know, sort of, how did it feel? Three, what do you want? Four, why do you want it? 
Uh, what do you think the other person experienced? What do you think they want and why they want it? Uh, what are you doing in order to get what you want? Is that working? You know, questions like this. And there were just a small number of them and we printed them up on cards and gave them to everybody. And then everybody practiced them. And so the kids would ask their parents, what happened, mommy? Um, how did it feel, right? And so what we had was um, something that just in a very limited number of questions, anybody could ask and then would move forward. I think that's really important, but I think also there's another message that I've taken out in a couple of different ways. Um, in, um, uh, it began really with uh, collective bargaining between the teachers union and the district in a large urban area uh, in which I was asked to facilitate the conversation. And then one of the questions I asked was, what is at stake in these conversations that you're about to have with each other? And what they came up with was, what's at stake is the lives of children. Well, isn't that the truth? And now I asked the question, would both sides be willing to agree that any proposal that comes forward here would have to demonstrate how it will impact the lives of children and improve those lives? Are you willing to accept that as a criteria for what we're going to adopt? And they all agreed. But the same can be, point can be made with regard to climate change. Not just the whole world is watching, children are watching and learning. Your, your daughter was brilliant and absolutely right on point. Congratulations. <laughs> um, yeah. And basically what I'm trying to do is we have to develop the culture of mediation around the world and children like Andrea said are very important. So what I'm trying to do is put a short story together. Dimitra is here. She's from Greece. She's already written a book for children. It's called The Elephant That Blows Rainbows. So we try, oh, yeah. I'm just, yeah, okay. I'm reworking that story a little bit, but the idea is to put something out which can go out all over the world. We have 1 billion children in school in the world. So this message has to go out to them to be able to understand, create that culture of mediation and create that into an animation, which goes out in every language in the world. So that's what we're doing. I'm looking for funding for that. When that comes in, we'll slowly, slowly take it forward. But at least I'm happy that Dimitra has actually put a story out with animals. She's taken animals and she's done that. So that's something which I think is a starting point. I mean, we are looking at scale. There is obviously a lot is happening in the US in terms of peer mediation, but we have to look at scale. So that part of it is what we're trying to do. And I'll definitely take your uh, viewpoint on that. But before that, I mean, I'm, please don't be in a hurry because people really have questions. There are people who have questions. There's Bob, uh, Bob wants to, how much time do you I, have? Uh, I do have to end at 10.30, I'm sorry. Which is another six minutes? Yes. Okay, so we have six minutes. Bob, please, we'll have to take it fast because there is, sure. there is other people waiting. Ken, thank you very much and happy birthday. Thank you, thank you very much. Ken, throughout this series, and, and I've really enjoyed it uh, immensely, we've always worked from the position that we have everyone around the table who is relevant to the discussion. My very simple question is, how do you know when there are people missing and what can you do about it? Yeah, really brilliant question, Bob. Thank you. Excellent question. Um, I uh, really first started to pay serious attention to this uh, issue many years ago when I was 
led a group of mediators um, to China to study the Chinese mediation system. This was still under uh, when there was, uh, uh, I guess it was really, it wasn't under Mao, but I think it was under Deng Xiaoping. And what happened was there were just millions and millions of conflicts between mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, for example, over who was going to use the kitchen, right? Um, guess who was missing from those conversations? The husband and the dad, right? Out the back as quick as they could get. But the point is, these were ghost roles. That's what I called them in the in looking at it. And then I started seeing ghost roles being played everywhere. The people who are not present. In organizations, the top leadership is not there. Um, uh, sometimes in the family, uh, in a conflict with one child, the other child is not there, or one of the parents is missing from the conversation or whatever. And so um, I've become much more sensitive to the question of who's missing and also what's missing in this conversation. What are we not talking about? And I would frame that as a question that I will actually ask people. What are we not talking about that we need to discuss in order for this to be uh, useful? And they will tell you. Um, and now um, the problem becomes, what do you do, for example, uh, in a case where there is a group that will not participate? So I did a mediation involving a fraternity uh, at a large university that was having a theme night. They were gonna have a big party uh, and they called it Mexican theme night. And they put out a flyer with, uh, and on the flyer were the words to a really vicious racist and sexist song called Lupe the Mexican Whore. A really horrible, disgusting. And as soon as this came out, everybody completely hit the roof. Uh, and there were accusations, counter accusations. The president of the university called and said, will you come in and try and mediate this? So I said, yes. The night before the mediation, the fraternity went uh, on, the, in, on television and said, gave the following apology. Well, you know, uh, maybe we made a mistake, but you know, if we did, we're sorry and it's time to move on. Well, you can imagine how that went over, right? So I show up the next day and the only ones who are there are the fraternities. So I think to myself, what do I do now? And I decided, okay, I've got to figure out some way of moving this forward. So I thought about it a little bit and I came up with this plan. So I came in and I said, um, okay, are you ready to start? And they said, well, the other side isn't here. And I said, are you doing this for them or are you doing this for you? And they said, well, we apologized. I said, well, what, what is your national origin? Where does your family come from? And the guy came from Italy. And I said, well, if somebody told a joke about Italians that was really insulting, and then they apologized the way that you apologized, would it be over for you? And he said, no. I say, okay, that's why we're gonna do it. And they actually came up with stuff that they would never have come up with beforehand. Um, and what we created out of this was a dialogue um, around a, a process that is called a Samoan circle. And there's a table in the center of the room. One chair is for fraternities and sororities. One chair is for minority students. One chair is for women. One chair is for anybody. And now no rules, except that 
Only the people who are seated in those chairs can talk. And now there's a microphone and there are thousands of people gathered around on the outside. And this conversation gets really interesting and everybody jumps in. So that's, if you can create a process like that, that is really open, um, an open dialogue type of process, people will really actually join in. Um, one of the pieces that I found, however, is that different cultures have different elements about how they know that they're invited. Uh, so uh, among the Latino students, for example, um, if you send out, you know, sort of a mailer to everybody, that doesn't feel like you're being invited. It's everybody's invited, but not you. But if there's something with your name on it, or somebody comes and asks you, then you're invited, and then you'll show up. So sometimes it's that kind of issue. And sometimes what it is, is this, and this is kind of the last piece I'll mention before I end. There is hidden resistance. And what I say to myself every time I encounter resistance is a quote, which is for me. So it's funny to put quotes around it. Um, and the quote is, what I say to myself is, all resistance reflects an unmet need. Go find out what that need is. And then I will meet with people individually who are not part of the group, but they'll meet with me and I'll ask them what they need in order to be able to participate. I hope that helps, Bob. But can, can we get a five minute extension? With Adriana? Uh, actually, I've got people who are, who are arriving uh, shortly. So I'm, I'm afraid I really do have to go. Okay, because she had some questions. She'll be waiting for some time. So. Uh, well, perhaps by email. No, no, not by email. We'll have another session with you. Only question. Everyone will ask or you will only answer. We'll have another session. We'll do that. Uh, can you ask the question now? And let's see if maybe there's a short answer. Yes. No, she says it was a little complicated. Adriana, do you want to ask the question? No, I won't ask because it is a little bit, a bit complicated. But uh, I will say something I missed last time when I was uh, listening to you. It's a really a pleasure to lis uh, listen Thanks. to you again. Um, uh, a strange and uh, interesting coincidence was that uh, uh, the day before I listened to you, I was just fin finishing the reading of a book of autobiography of Martin Luther King. Uh, and the next day, <laughs> I was listening to you and you were uh, talking about being a part of that uh, part of the history. And I was really honored to listen to you. And you. Uh, uh, all this uh, uh, with the mediation, uh, I, my question was uh, uh, in the direction of this public policy mediation. Uh, if there is some, since this is, these are really uh, complex uh, cases and uh, conflicts, is there some specific uh, characteristics you need to have uh, how to uh, get closer these mutual interests? Because in these political groups, usually there are uh, uh, really strong uh, win or lose uh, positions. So in uh, that direction, so how do you, uh, mediate in those cases and maybe is there some specific character characteristics but I think that it is too complex uh, for uh, you right now to answer yeah. so. uh, just one guide um, come from your heart that's the one guide all right thank you thank, Vikram. Th thank you very much happy happy birthday I think everyone just wants to wish you happy one birthday. a pleasure 
and Thank you for but, yeah, but we need one only only people asking questions and you answering we have to do that one session now where they can get an opportunity because there there are people waiting but they actually have, i think obviously have more complicated questions so okay so i think thank you very much okay yes if you want to unmute yourself thank you now. thank you very much thank you very much who's saying that okay diana D diana diana i diana. I'm, i'm sorry there wasn't enough time for you to ask the questions here no, okay 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 next next time next yeah yeah time. we'll do another sure. next we'll do a next time only with questions by people we will not uh, tell can uh, to even say something before that right okay john you're muted okay john you're muted vic vic when is her trying to talk what's it when is your birthday birthday now every day is a birthday come on you have to wish me every day you have to send me gifts every day because you don't I know when it is i think we all have to plan a whole session with vikram and his life now help me get that you know started yeah when i'm 80 we when i'm 80 we have to do it. no 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 we're not waiting that long it has to happen soon we can i mean how can we you know work with you if we don't hear your story who's who's right? working with me no one is working with me everyone is oh, out there working with you I, that's what i been <laughs> complaining about please get involved there is so much to do we have to reach out every part of the world but no one is do is doing that they come in listen to these shows and then go away that's it you don't know how much they're doing outside of this you just have to hear their stories we should have a whole session on how they're helping you Yeah. No, actually, it was very nice when uh, MC had come. She actually said that you're at least creating some impact. I haven't seen it, but if it's happening. I'm very happy that's happening there. That's what I mean. You don't know the impact you're having, so you should hear that, no, and we that should right. have a session on you, and people will come, right, Bob? Absolutely Jim, agree. Jim didn't say anything. Jim, you were was there something that you wanted to say? Uh. No, I just appreciated the uh, opportunity. I've known Ken for 25 years or so. Um I was the director of operations for Mediators Beyond Borders when he uh was promoting um mediation as part of the the whole environmental uh, uh catastrophe that we continue to live through. And so Ken is a, a fascinating person who I've known for a long time. and it was a pleasure to uh, sit in and listen to him again and and vikram the point i, I do want to make one point you, to, to, in response to your uh, your sort of hesitancy at uh, at, at uh, just digging in mediation grew very slowly in the united states and it it still is one of the best kept secrets in the united states we still we still look to the courts we still look to um uh, unfortunately guns and things like that as a way of resolving disputes so even here where we've been doing active mediation uh for 40 or 50 years it's still just it's in its infancy so please don't don't feel at all like uh you're the lone ranger out there you may you may be um leading the charge the charge will follow you if you if you just keep going that's very nice so you to say that that's right if you build the field people will come 
It's what the I baseball want. thing, right? What was that? Uh, field of Dreams? Yes. <laughs> but, but Jim, if you, you build it, people will come. But Jim, all these people have definitely met, met each other. But let me just introduce you. Bob is in Northern Ireland. He's obviously comes in. Juan is actually from Nigeria, but she's in, I don't know whether she's in US right now. Or she's in Nigeria. And, she's in US and Maryland. Ah, oh, she unmuted herself. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I am in Maryland right now. Okay. And, and I enjoyed very much the, the presentation by Kim. And um, it's quite exciting for me because it's um, mediation in Nigeria. We Traditionally, it's a thing we do, but then the, we are trying to structure a system where we begin to get mediators involved in national disputes. And you know, Nigeria is going through a very difficult time now. We are trying to do confederation and there's a lot of argument in terms of secession and people are trying to say, no, we don't need to secede, but we need to remain a country, but we still need to define the rules of engagement and how we take care of things in the country. So, and women have been, uh, kind of been invited now to participate in these national discussions. And as I listened to Kim, um, I, was, I was very excited because it's going beyond the interpersonal dispute to group or social issues. And people can come together to begin to discuss such issues. So, and I was really wondering, how do I intervene? But when he started speaking about the issues of like ground rules, what we want to achieve and how we want to get involved, I still said, okay, fine. I'm not completely lost. I'm, I'm coming on board. And I really find it very interesting. <laughs> because I don't know, Jim, the thing is why I want to discuss this is because a country like India, private mediation is kind of zero. There's nothing much happening there. There is quote annex mediation which has happened which are for, for me is, is an issue because according to me that really doesn't is not going to let the profession develop so I have want conversations on private mediation and experiences in the US how, where we can learn from we don't have to reinvent the wheel kind of thing so that was my concern which is something which I wanted to discuss also I had, I had a good friend who unfortunately died from COVID but um, uh, uh, was a mediator in uh, in Guayaquil, Ecuador, and um, and she went to the university and and helped start a uh, a mediation training program at uh, the, the Catholic University in Guayaquil, uh, which eventually over a period of ten years led her to be uh, actually in the the attorney general's office. She was the head of the. Uh, uh, the mediation department, um, but so there's there's ways that you can do this, Vikram. You can you can go to your local university and say, we need to start a mediation program and open it up to all the students. Let's just start with the students and uh, and and baby steps because it's it's when it's as you get awareness of it throughout. Uh, a small part of society that it that you've got the the kernel that could grow. 
so jim that's what my because i am looking at skill and i the way i am looking at it is that the communication has to go out first to create that culture first of all so that was i was talking about that little book well small little book with a little animation to go out to all the children in the world which can right. once it gets into the house the parents will have a look at it it could be 3 minutes it could be 5 minutes whatever it is because we have connectivity i mean there are cell phones all over so one little animation can be watched people watch all kinds of tiktok videos and everything so that's one starting point then the same communication in a little more refined or more i mean more advanced form for the older children at the colleges and all and because i'm i'm thinking that if we kind of communication that we have to send out it's huge the kind of numbers that we have so to say that we can if one individual can go and talk to some people we don't have those people to do that conversation because ken has spoken about those uh, role of mediators in social problem solving and he's talking about mediators going out and having discussions with the local authorities and everything but you need people for that they have to be mediators to do that we don't have those numbers so it has to go out in some other form so i'm saying people who have that experience they have a little clip that they put out and we send it all over there's youtube we can put it up there so i'm looking at social media and mass media to be the way to at least get the culture out that's how i'm looking at it i mean i mean i'm okay i'm looking at suggestions i want people to suggest and give some view on that so with your experience is there something that you've thought of how to get the communication out train mediators train mediators that's that's about <laughs> it lisa lisa no, right. no 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 lisa no 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 i'm not saying anything <laughs> My lips are sealed. Okay, I tell him about that. <laughs> I I I need to go though. Okay, you go. I tell him about it. Basically, Jim, I've been I've been talking about. Thank you so much. I'm saying mediation. The training is something which, for us, it's not going to be something we can be able to do in the numbers that we need because with 1.3 billion people, we need lots of those mediators. What I'm trying to do is sending out a message where you identify those with the mediator mindset within communities and use them. for the mediations and the training aspect of it can be put out in videos on youtube they can all access it so just trying to create a little larger number there so that's how i'm looking at it okay well i'm just i'm just getting ready to uh, design a mediation basic mediation training course for uh uh california state university or california university at uc davis so uh december uh get in touch with UC Davis and see if my mediation uh training program is online already yeah that'd be good because these are the kind of things we want to put out because i have playlists on my youtube channel with people from all over the world who've done webinars and anything so it's all there see so it's just that there is access available to people from all over the world they can have a look at that whatever modules because the best in the world can then train them it's not about going to any kind of a 40 hour training it's actually the people who actually have that experience and they are the best so that is one way of going about it in terms of training and how i'm looking at it but the only problem is look mediators in general at least in a lot of places in the world don't have too much work so training has been a way of livelihood also for them so to tell them that no we this is going to go out on youtube and it's going to be free for people to access i think might create a problem for them also i mean they might or might not want to be part of it so that is how That's fair. Yeah. so diana has a question Yes, Diana. You're Diana. muted, Diana. Diana, you'll have to unmute yourself. Anyway, 
maybe about the um, setting some training programs for mediators, maybe you have to uh, let the people know what mediation is and what what is helping uh, about, for example, maybe you can set in every university or smaller university, some sort of a center of conflict resolution. So people go there and then you can work and then they understand that they need it. Yeah. So that's what you're going to do. Basically, the idea is that first the whole little introduction to mediation in a very simple form and then telling them how they can go about creating it within their institutions or in communities. So I think that's that's how it's going to go out in simple communication that has to happen. And I'm looking, that's what I'm saying, I'm looking at ways to do it in a manner where we can reach large numbers. Vikram, you, you obviously have a problem in a nation of a billion people. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we have, we have what, 300 million here in the United States yeah. and we've got mediation centers everywhere yeah. and people still don't know about it and still don't use it. So uh, you have a large pro problem. I know, I know. That's why I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is that let's get the basic culture going. So uh, children, look, if you have 1 billion children in the world and if they can at least get that let's call it the culture of collaboration let's call the call it the culture of collaboration and then call it the get into the culture of mediation let's just get the basic thing which is all there it's just that they have to it's all i mean what i started doing was having conversations with kids to understand what's happening with them without them having any idea of what peer mediation is so just a conversation and what i understood from those conversations was they're already doing it they know what it's about they don't know the word mediation so they don't, they, they don't, they can't explain to you from that word, but they, we asked them. So they actually said, yes, so-and-so child does it in their, our class, in our school. We go to this person. So they, they, they said that. So we have all that happening. We just have to tell them this is a process. You can identify your own mediator. That's all, like we said, party-driven process. There are people, you identify them and let them help you resolve their disputes. In terms of... Uh, I mean, content for those people. There is a in Hawaii. There is an institution called the Institute. I think Matasunga, Matasunaga, something like that. They did a whole conference on peer mediation. So all those videos are up there on their YouTube channel, which is also a playlist that I've got. So I'm saying people all over the world can have access. In terms of information, there is no problem. It's just I think the concept of that culture. And just to be able for, for those people to then talk about it. So little snippets of those children's experiences, we'll make those and we'll circulate those. I'm, I'm like, I'm told you, Jim, I'm looking at scale and how to do it at scale. That's how I'm looking at it. Good luck. And you, you are going to be, give your suggestions. It's not going to be good luck and thank you very much and I'm going kind of thing. You're going to be involved. Your coming here means that you are going to be part of the process. Okay, that's fair. It means, I mean, I run it through all of you. So it's just that everyone's thoughts, but people all over the world, Diana's in Argentina, so or, or of course the Spanish concept of, that. I mean, you have to put it in various languages. So she'll come in there culturally. Yes, Diana, you'll have to be, you'll also be part of that process. So that's how it's going to work. And I mean, I mean animation is always a good way of going about it. So that we can have that. Well, Ar and Argentina is a leader in uh, in uh, mediation in uh, South America. 
Uh, when, uh, no, I, I know a couple of uh, really good mediators in uh, uh, Argentina, huh? Well, Buenos Aires. Have, um, yes, we have mandatory mediation in conflict um, before the, um, you go to courts. So uh, it's a standard procedure, but it's also community mediation where uh, what is very, very incredible use because um, the ombudsman's office said uh, conflict resolutions office. So it's for free for the people and the ombudsman pays the mediators. And so people can go there and with their conflicts and, you know, where are the customers of the mediation? Uh, so people in conflict, so they don't know where to go. So they go to the, uh, to complain to the ombudsman's office, to the government. So they set some uh, centers of community mediations there and that's why it's working. And we have all over the country, I think. But um, Diana, the, still... but, Diana, the Ombuds concept, is it mediation or is it a, a made up kind of thing? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Like the Ombudsman's office is for another kind of issues. But there were so many people complaining about particular issues with their uh, neighbors that Finally, they have to set a place for them because it was always complaining. So, it, it, you know, they, it's not what an ombudsman's office must do, but they have to, to at least help the people to solve their problems. No, I and I it was, was a great success. No, I was In the talking... 90s, no, but I was talking about this ombuds thing with you was because in India we have these public utility ombudsmen. But the concept there is they will try and help you resolve the disputes. I mean, they, they will be mediators to that point. But if you cannot resolve it, they'll pass an award. So they become arbitrators after that. Which in the U US, when you talk about the ombuds, they're actually only going to be in whatever. We're just facilitating a dialogue they try and help you resolve but they will never there's no authority kind of thing so this is the word by itself has been kind of misused maybe or just a different meaning has been given to it which is a bit of a problem that i see here there is a conflictorium in ahmedabad mm -hmm. you know what was that there is a conflictorium and in Ahmedabad in mm -hmm. the west of the India, mm -hmm. and it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I have a dog. I, I, I can, have I to mute myself. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, that's okay. I think basically we have to just at this point, maybe I'll just end this here and we'll take up this discussion.